music team that does such a wonderful job uh, each week in, in leading us and singing uh, praises to the Lord. I know you all uh, put in time practicing and preparation, and it shows, and we just appreciate uh, what you add to our service. And, and I appreciate our technical crew up there in the crew's nest that uh, help us in uh, different things, uh, technical things that take place in the order of the service, and we're grateful for them as well. This morning, we're going to be looking at uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, and uh, picking up there in verse 14. Uh, the theme for the message is, and, and for this series is simply follow me. And so uh, I'll let, let everybody get that. So as we begin looking here in chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 14, uh, we, previously Jesus has just finished another parable. Jesus is teaching in parables these wonderful stories that are that have earthly uh, basis and meaning, and yet eternal heavenly uh, meaning as well. And so as we begin in opening up this portion of chapter 16, Jesus, again, is getting ready to go into another teaching session, if you will. And, and the Lord, you'll notice, redirects his attention now. In the previous section in chapter 16, Jesus was speaking primarily to his disciples, his faithful followers. And now he's shifting his attention back to teaching directly to the Jewish religious leaders. And this typically is the audience that Jesus directs his attention to oftentimes primarily the Pharisees, as he has concluded the previous lesson using the parable of the unjust steward that you may recall uh, there in chapter 16. And if you'll just glance back, he was ending up that parable uh, in verse 13. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And of course, mammon being money, material possessions, and things and stuff and, and all of that. So as we as we see that, Jesus is, is ending up that parable in a, in a kind of a confronting way to the religious leaders. That that gets a reaction from them. And, and we'll see that as we begin in verse 14. And as, as we do, as Jesus goes on in to the next several verses there, you'll see that uh, that, that he is, is, is putting them on guard. In fact, as Jesus confronts the Pharisees on their mishandling of God's word, specifically, he exposed their sinful disregard for the Holy Scriptures. And that, that's ironic because they pride themselves in being the experts on the law, the scribes and the Pharisees and that crew. And yet Jesus reveals how they have demonstrated a sinful disregard for, for God's holy word. So begin reading with me there in verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things. So they were listening, even though Jesus was talking to the uh, the disciples, they were listening to everything that Jesus is saying. And, and, and when he said that about you cannot serve God and you cannot serve mammon, money, at the same time, knowing full well 
that they were lovers of money, as, as the scripture says there, it drew a reaction from them. And I thought it was interesting because when, when Jesus is, is saying that, it says that in verse uh, 14 that the, the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him. Now, in different translations, that, that comes out different ways. In the ESV, it says they ridiculed him. And then in the NIV, it says that they sneered at him. And the reason I'm making, uh, uh, drawing your attention to that is, is you can see the increasing hostility that these religious leaders have towards Christ just in the way that they react towards what he is preaching. Because back in chapter 15, if you just glance back up maybe a page, and in another situation where Jesus is teaching, in verse 2, chapter 15, verse 2, it says the Pharisees and scribes murmured. This is when people speak, you know, muttering under their breath. You maybe have maybe talked to somebody that didn't agree with you, but they wouldn't say it outright. You know, they turned to somebody else and maybe, you know, they know, you know, they're talking about you. But but it's inaudible. Not, not so now in chapter 16, when it says that they derided him, they sneered at him, they ridiculed him. They're outwardly confronted. They, they're laughing at him. They're, they're making fun of him. They're joking about him. It's, it's, it's out so everybody can hear. So, so the antagonism that has been mounting between the Pharisees and Jesus is, is coming to a pitch now as Jesus is making this march towards Jerusalem and towards the cross and, and his own crucifixion. Jesus points to their unbiblical form of Pharisaic Judaism is what I call it there. As we look in verse 15, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Let's just stop there. Because you see here, Jesus is pointing out that just their own practice of, of this form of legalism, the Judaism that was steeped in legalism, and, and, and they prided themselves in their meticulous knowledge of every part of the Word of God. They could quote Scripture left and right. They could tell you about all the different lessons from all the different parts of the Old Testament, and they were considered the experts in that. They, they prided themselves in their very visible outward form of, 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 of service to, to God, their, their outward religious rituals. You know, they prided themselves in being able to pray these beautiful, long, you know, public prayers. They looked for the most congested places on the street corner where lots of people, and they would just launch into these long, you know, uh, orations of prayer. Not to not to gain God's approval or attention, but to, to gain the attention and the approval of people. They did that with their giving of alms. They, they loved to give publicly out where people could see them. So, so you see, it was a very superficial, very legalistic. They walked around in public in their regal robes. They wanted people to see by their attire 
that they were they, they were the elite of the religious community at that time. You know, just as the Lord pointed out there in verse 15, he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. In other words, you, you're, you're more interested in the approval of men. You want people to be uh, you know, impressed by you and your acts and your rituals and your dress and all of that. But he says, what is highly esteemed with men is an, an abomination in the sight of God. Don't think that God is impressed with what you do and how you practice your legalism. They would have done well to go back to Proverbs in chapter 11 and read where it says the perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord. God looks at a heart. If that heart is rotten with selfishness and pride and egotism, it's an abomination. And that's what it was in the face of God. Or Proverbs chapter 15, verse 8, where the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. The Pharisees mastered the hundreds of man-made laws. Oh, they, they knew all these laws that, that Judaism had produced to keep the people suppressed and under the bondage of all this, this, this ritualistic legalism. Oh, they knew that going back and forth. But it was just a, a self-righteous form of, of worship that was virtually meaningless. And their antics may have fooled the general public, but folks, they didn't fool Christ. He saw right through them. He knew he knew that, that, that their, their acts, the public display of religion was in stark contrast to a heart that is truly given over to the Lord. And so we see in contrast to their disregard for the word of God, you'll see that Christ, the Lord, reinforces the permanent and the infallibility of the word of God. Look with me there again in verse 17. And he says, and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for, for one tittle, the smallest stroke of the pen in the, in the writing of the scriptures. He says, it would be easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one small stroke of the law to fail. That's how strong Jesus felt about the word of God. And he, he, he made a point of saying there in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John, the Old Testament. The, the, the revelation of the coming Messiah is woven all through. We talked about that even in our, our Christian growth group this morning, the importance of seeing the resurrection through the light of the Old Testament. And, he's, and Jesus is saying, if you had been keenly aware, if you had been you know, uh, led by the Spirit of God, if you had been looking for the truth, he says all the way up to John, the, the testimony of the prophets, the Old Testament revealed the Messiah. It spoke all about Christ. They would have known the, the, the true identity of the Son of God had they simply, truly believed in what the prophets were saying in the Old Testament. Jesus had been revealed through not only the Old Testament, but Jesus had been revealed in, in the teachings and the preachings of, of, the, of John the Baptist. Jesus spoke himself and taught himself about his identity, that he was the Son of God. And yet they 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 rejected that. So we see the 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 importance that the word of God, the the in, infallibility and the, the inerrance of the word of God was to Christ. If you were to go back in Matthew chapter five and verse 17, there was another time that Jesus is talking about the importance of the permanence and the accuracy 
of the word of God and the respect that is due to God's word. He, and the fact that he didn't come to, to undermine the teachings of the scriptures, he came to fulfill them. Look in, in chapter five, or listen as I read verse 17. Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy her, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it is fulfilled. Jesus made it clear to everyone listening to him, especially to the, the Pharisees, that he had come not to, to undermine the word of God, but to fulfill the word of God. And, and yet, if you look at the practice of, of Judaism, you'll see so many times where they undermine, they weaken the truth of, words, of the word of God. And, and the example that Jesus gives is found there in chapter 16 in verse 18, because the Pharisees' view on marriage and divorce was not biblically accurate as the Lord pointed out to them. Look with me at verse six, uh, 18 in chapter 16. Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever uh, um, whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, this is not an extensive teaching here on the subject of, of divorce and remarriage. If you'd like to see that, go over to Matthew 19, and, uh, and then also Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 7. But what Jesus is saying here, look, if you had only known the original intent of God's plan for marriage, you would have known that from the very beginning, God intended that there be one man and one woman who would be married for life. And yet he, he, he knew full well that the, the Jews there in the first century period in which Jesus is teaching and preaching, they, they had justified divorce by intentionally misrepresenting or misinterpreting the words of Moses on the subject in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 where Moses had said that in the case of you know, glaring immorality, there might be a case where a man would write a letter of divorce. But tragically, by the time that Jesus comes along and, and, and Judaism as practiced by the Pharisees, why men, depending upon which rabbinical school you were following, but men were writing letters of divorce for their wives for, for a lot of, of minuscule things. Tragically, it resulted in men writing Divorce letters for flimsy reasons like a wife burning his meal or his disrespect of the man's mother, her, her mother-in-law, or maybe she wasn't as good looking as a woman that he had fancied at that time. And they were using those and justifying it based upon their misinterpretation of the scriptures. And Jesus says that that in and of itself says your disregard for the for the law, for God's word. They were claimed to be guardians of the law. And yet the Pharisees themselves were greatest violators of the word of God. You know, Jesus also not only un, un, un revealed or unveiled their lack of regard and, and, and uh, love for the word of God and practicing the word of God. But as we go on in chapter 16, in another parable, we see where Jesus unravels the Pharisees tragic. And I emphasize tragic teachings on the afterlife because what they were teaching and people were believing was resulting in a good number of people ending up in hell and so you know when you tamper with the word of god it not only has you know immediate effects and undermines the authority of god's word but but it also has long-term 
effects. Dr. John MacArthur said false religions, false religion damns. It does not save and must be exposed for what it is. That's what Jesus is doing right here. He's exposing this false religious system that has permeated Judaism, the Jews, the Jews and the, 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 the Jewish society. And so he's, he's exposing it in this, in this very parable. And it's interesting because as in this parable of rich, the rich man and, and, and a poor man named Lazarus, you know, it's interesting. Jesus gives us a unique teaching on the afterlife. Think about it. Who, who has the authority to teach about life after death? except the very one who created life, the very one who is in control and, and knows life at, beyond the grave. And so Jesus is teaching a very interesting parable here, and his parable reveals the stark contrast of two, man, two men's lives during the time that they're alive. And, and the details are important. Everything that Christ puts into the parables is there to help enhance the truthfulness of, of this story. So let's pick up there in, in verse 19 and, and uh, read together. There was a certain rich man. And, and that's, that's parable language. Jesus, when he begins the story and just says, there was a certain, is, is, that's a clue that what he's teaching here is, is, a, is a parable. A certain rich man who was clothed in purple. And that's significant because purple cloth, purple, purple clothing, was extremely expensive simply because the, the dye, the purple dye, was extracted from the, the shells of snails. And it was a, a rare thing to be able to, to have that. And um, and I think it was Lydia in, in, in the Acts, Book of Acts, that, that was a, a, a dealer of purple but uh, and was a, a wealthy woman. But this man, he, he was clothed in purple. This, this would almost have been like royal clothing not only that jesus says and and he, and and he had fine linen most people would have worn you know the wool that they produced through their sheep you know because that that's what they did they herded sheep but this this was fine linen linen that was that was made from imported cotton from one of the maybe far further eastern countries so this is a man of great means jesus is letting you see that visual picture as he parades around and he's very, uh, he's very wealthy, just represented by his clothing. And he fared sumptuously. I'm reading from the New King James translation. Your translation may say something a little different. In other words, he feasted luxuriously. I mean, it wasn't just, he didn't go home and eat sandwiches and soup. You know, every meal was an elegant banquet. I mean, he spared nothing. And then it had all the entrapments of wealth and, and plenty. And so he, every day, not just on special days, this man had everything that, that you could probably want and desire. And I'm sure at this time, Jesus has, has gotten the attention of, of the Pharisees here. And then he goes on and he says, but, verse 20, there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. And again, a certain beggar, but this man carries a name. Now, this is unusual because Jesus typically doesn't give names in the parables. But there's a, there's a reason why he gives the beggar uh, uh, a name. Uh, but we'll look at that. But the fact is, 
as, as you look at the condition of this, this beggar named Lazarus, he was full of sores, probably ulcerated uh, uh, infections in his skin, oozing. And, and so he was not only very poor, he was, he was sickly, and, and he was laid at, at the gate of this rich man. And just the, the, the word, the verb laid at the gate was almost like somebody just saying, what are we going to do with this guy? You know, he, he can't work. He can't. He doesn't have anything. He's he's, you know, starving. He's, he's look at all the sores. And they say, oh, the rich man, he's got everything. We'll just drive by and drop him off. Then he'll be in front of the man's gate and the man will have some responsibility to have to take care of him. You know, it's interesting, as I said, this this beggar's name, Lazarus, came from the Hebrew word or name Eleazar, which means translated, whom God has helped. And we'll, we'll see that play out there. But let's go back now and look at the, the rich man and, and, and just see the significance of how Jesus is casting him. You know, this rich man, it's, as we see, he had no notice of this poor man, even though the rich man possessed everything. And as in verse 21, it says that Lazarus was desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. That that did not maybe which it wasn't like people sat there and tossed out breadcrumbs from the table at any banquet. You know, when everybody's eating you know, a nice leg of lamb or lamb chops or some of the greasy meat that they would have. It was so delicious, you know, and they got all this grease on their hands. They didn't use napkins. They used leftover bread to, to wipe their hands. So you can imagine somebody having a loaf of bread and wiping their mouth and getting another couple of slices and, and, and wiping off their hands. You know, and as they did, they would just toss it. They'd toss it, you know, out from the table. And, and therefore, you know, Lazarus is thinking, if I could just get some of those crumbs with the meat juice on it, that would be wonderful. That's how desperate he was. And if his life wasn't treacherous enough and bad enough, it says then that the dogs, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, those of you who are dog lovers, you love getting licked on by a dog, right? Yeah, but we don't, we, that's not the case. The dogs that are cast here, in that time, dogs were, um, were were like scavengers. They were, you know, uh, despised creatures. And so they, they, these dogs are, you know, probably coming and licking these open ooze and sores on Lazarus's body. And and and, and probably they may have even begun to, to, you know, to bite at it. You know, they're they're scavengers. I mean, if you could cast. Uh, you know, a situation that was desperate and despairing. This was the way Jesus cast the role of Lazarus. What a contrast. Now, here's the rich man as he's going out of his household and he's got, you know, he's, he, he's got his chariot and he's got his purple clothes flowing in the wind. You know, obviously, obviously this man had no knowledge of or recollection of or even chose to remember you know, the, the, the commandments that were given in the word of God, like in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, that says you should love God preeminently in your life. You should love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so this 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 man, this rich man, has has totally violated the word of God and showing no compassion whatsoever. He didn't even notice Lazarus being there, much less caring about him. He didn't look down and say, "Ooh, man, somebody get some food. Somebody get some medical help. Get get this this poor man something there." And so what Jesus is doing is painting a picture of just stark contrast of two men's conditions in this life. And then he begins to unfold and unveil the shocking contrast in the two men's afterlife. This is what happens after they die. Beginning in verse 22 there. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. The rich man, no doubt, had a, a, a glorious funeral. They were probably some of the best musicians, hired a whole multitude of mourners. I mean, it was probably something that just, you know, was a, a, a community event that drew, drew many, many. And then yet on the other hand, it simply says, and the beggar died. No funeral. Somebody came by and saw his lifeless body laying there. They called, you know, the Jerusalem garbage collectors. Says, there's a dead man over here. And they would come and they'd pick up his dead body, his lifeless body, and they would take it to the city dump. That's what they did with poor people's bodies. There was no funeral. There was no respect for his body after he died. There was no respect for his body before he died. And so they would throw his diseased, emaciated, lifeless body upon the heap of all the trash. And, and Jesus used the term hell, drawn from that term Gehenna, which was the, the expression that referred to the dump outside the city where they had fires going all the time, burning the refuge. And they would eventually. So even in death, as, as they died, there was a stark contrast. But then things take a shocking turn as far as the Sadducees or the Pharisees. Because remember, the rich man in this parable is really representing the religious elite, the Pharisees. No need to talk about the Sadducees because they didn't believe in the life after, but the Pharisees did. And so in verse 23, and being in torments in Hades, he's speaking about the rich man. He lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Sometimes some interpreters try to say that the place where the abode of the dead who were righteous, was called the bosom of Abraham. But the, the commentaries that I'm reading that, that seem to be more reliable says that all this says is that Abraham's soul was escorted by angels. Now, this is a unique happening, but, but here's, here's a, a poor beggar, had nothing, and, and suddenly... At death, his soul is taken by the angels 
and placed alongside of Abraham in the abode of the dead for the righteous. Now, if you're going to show up in what is the equivalent of heaven, or paradise, that's what it was called, paradise, and you want, if you're going to be deposited in heaven, you couldn't find a better seat than to be placed sitting right next to Father Abraham. Problem is, that's probably where the rich man thought he would be. And yet, Jesus is unfolding the story, and this is where that poor beggar, Lazarus, finds himself. And there in verse 22, he says, the rich man also died and was buried. And, and then in verse 23, and being in torments in Hades, Hades is, if you can imagine, before Christ was resurrected, because we know that after Christ's resurrection, he took all the souls of the saints into the presence of God. And, and so out of Sheol, out of the, out of the place that, that would be the place for this, the souls of the saints, they were lifted up into heaven, but, but the place for those souls of the wicked, those who had rejected God and God's son, then they, their souls would go to a place of torment called Hades, which is a precursor for hell. They, they've not been cast into the fires of hell yet because that comes after Revelation 21, the great bright throne of judgment. That time, all the souls will be resurrected, stand before the Lord in judgment, and then they will be condemned into the eternal fiery pit of hell. But this holding place is not a picnic, folks. It's not a, 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 it's not a rendition of what the Catholics would call purgatory. It's not just an uncomfortable place that somebody goes until the family members left behind can pay off the church to, to win their way into heaven. No, no, no. This is just a place of torment. A precursor of hell where a soul goes to await the final judgment that is to come at the end of time. So here's the rich man. He's representing the Pharisees and he's immediately in, he immediately enters into the tormenting fires of Hades eternally, I emphasize, eternally at that point separated from the presence of God, God's love, God's mercy, and there he is. And so in verse 23, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, now let me clarify something. Jesus is teaching a parable. The, the, there's nothing throughout the rest of the scriptures that indicates that those who are in Hades can actually see people who are in paradise. But this is for the purpose of teaching this point. Jesus only uses it here so that we can get the full drift of what he's saying there. And so in this situation, the rich man in torment looks up, he sees Abraham, Father Abraham, and he sees Lazarus. Now, Abraham could be representation of God, of the Lord. But the fact is, the, the beggar, has, Lazarus, has got a lot better situation going on for him than, than this rich man who's now in torment. And he says in verse 24, he cried, the rich man did, and said, Father Abraham, 
have, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. So the abode of the dead who have rejected God, unbelievers, they are all right now, even as they, we await the day of judgment, are in agonizing, unending, unrelenting torment. And that's what is. And so he's saying to Father Abraham, send, that, send Lazarus over here. The first time the rich man has ever called the beggar's name. He never ever gave him even the dignity of calling. But now the circumstances have changed. He said, sin Lazarus, but it's interesting. That that betrays his attitude, even, even in torment, even in the afterlife. He still sees Lazarus as that poor man who's like a servant. Send, send him over here like a servant. Get, get him to bring some water over here. He's used to bossing people around, telling them what to do for his own advantage, but he's going to find not, it doesn't work. The situation is absolutely reversed. Lazarus is the one who has received favor of God. Lazarus is the one who is enjoying comfort, comfort and pleasure, eternal life. Look at verse 25 in response to the rich man's plea. But Abraham said, son, and he's only saying that, in reference to the biological connection, not a spiritual connection. This man is not a spiritual son of Abraham as the Bible describes those who share Abraham's faith and righteousness. He's just saying, I know you're one of mine. I know you came out of my lineage. He says, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things. You had everything. You were filthy rich. You had more than you could, could use yourself. And likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now, he is comforted and you are tormented. No sign of relief. No gesture on Abraham's part to say, man, I, I, I see you suffering. I, I really hate, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give you at least a couple drops of water. No, there is no relief on the other side for those who have rejected the Lord. No one escapes the eternal punishment for sin. No one except those who choose to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And look at verse 26. And Abraham goes on to say, and besides all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. You couldn't come here. They couldn't come to you if they wanted to. God never intended for there to be mingling between those who are in the uh, in, in, in paradise with those who are in Hades or hell. There's, there's no such thing as somebody dying and going to hell and then coming back and saying, oh, now this is what I saw. Uh, I'm going to write a book about it. I'm going to warn everybody. Listen, that's, that doesn't happen. And the Bible is the only authority on death. And the afterlife, everything we know about life after death is given to us in the scripture. Everything we know about hell is given to us in the teachings of Christ in the scriptures. And everything we know about heaven given to us in the teachings of the holy word of God. It says, besides, there's a great gulf fixed. Nobody 
So now the rich man in desperation. I mean, he's, he's in absolute agony. But he's got the presence of mind to remember he's got family. And they, they probably epitomized him. They, they, they imitated him. They thought he was the, the, you know, the, the great example. And so he's got five brothers who were following in his footsteps. They, were, they may have been following in his footsteps of being materially successful and greedy and self-righteous and all, and all of that. It's self-centered. And he knows that. If they're following in his footsteps, guess where they are headed? In verse 27, then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him, speaking of Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Look at Abraham's response in verse 29. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Just like you did. They had the Old Testament. The word of God that, that revealed God's plan for mankind. It spoke of God's plan of redemption. It spoke of the importance of loving God and loving neighbors. They, they have the same benefit that you did. And notice the response. The, the, when Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. In verse 30, the rich man said, he said, no, Father Abraham, no, no, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Oh, yeah, they may not believe what the, 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 the scripture says. But if you just send somebody from the pits of, you know, the hell or from the afterlife. If, I, if Lazarus could just go back to my dad's house and tell my brothers about what, tell them about me. Warn them. Surely they would listen. Abraham said, but if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded Though one rise from the dead. That's a very sobering statement that, that Abraham says and certainly brings no relief to the rich man. But it certainly is a profound statement for us to focus upon. We only get one warrant on this side of eternity. And it's in the word of God. There, there will be no messengers coming back from the other side. Who can issue warnings. In fact, Abraham went on to point out, not even a miraculous messenger back from the dead will impress lost sinners enough to avoid the fires of hell. Think about it. When Jesus raised the widow's Son, there in the little town of Nain, from the dead. How many multitudes of people then turn and surrender their lives to follow Christ? When Jesus rose, raised Jairus' daughter, who had died, young girl, and gave her back life, 
So it is talk of a great spiritual movement of everybody abandoning Judaism and their sinful lives and and, in mass following after Christ. Why, shucks, when Jesus raised the other Lazarus, you know, in John chapter 11, the, the brother of Mary and Martha, the friend of Jesus who had died and been in the grave four days. It made no widespread impact upon people and they're choosing to follow Christ. If, if, if anything, you may recall in John chapter 11, it talked about that the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, just like they were plotting to kill Jesus, they were hatching a plot to kill Lazarus too. Not good enough that the man died once. Let's kill him twice. As if to silence him. Oh, no, no, no. There's, there's, there's no evidence to say that if a messenger came back on the other side of, of death, that that would cause people, that that won't rescue anybody from hell. Because we know there's only one solution to the sin problem. And that is faith. A person has to repent of their sins and they have to place their faith totally in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, was buried and resurrected on the third day and choose to, to follow him. That, my dear friend, is God's only rescue from hell. It's the only solution given then, now, and the future. And God's word has made it abundantly clear because you and I will encounter untold numbers of people who are walking in spiritual darkness and barring God intercepting their lives, they'll spend eternity in the fires of hell. But God has given a rescue plan. We know that God's word boldly declares in Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, not one. Not Pharisees, no Sadducees, no scribes, none righteous, not one. And that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The the word of God has made that clear. There's none righteous and all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if you have any questions about what the penalty of sin is, Romans Romans 6.23 says, For the penalty of sin is death, rich man, and fiery torment. The penalty of sin is, is death, eternal separation from the love and the mercy of God forever and ever and ever. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. The only rescue plan for those who are headed to hell is John 3.16. It says, for God so loved the world that he, he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe upon him should not perish but have everlasting life. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, and not by works, not by works, Pharisees, lest any man should boast. And Jesus had said earlier in Luke's gospel, chapter 9, verse 23, If any man comes after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily 
and follow me. You can boil God's rescue plan down to four simple words. Confess. Confess that you're a sinner. Agree with God. Yes, I am a sinner. I need a Savior. Profess. Yes, I profess faith in Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God who died for my sins, who was resurrected on the third day, and I put my faith totally in Him as my Lord and Savior. And then four, commit. Just as I indicated in Luke 9, 23. After you confess your sins and you repent of your sins, you turn your back on your sins and you, and you profess your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you commit to follow Him daily, practicing the divine principles of His Word. It's the only way. It's a shame the rich man never learned that. And he's suffering. And there are many like him. He was a fictitious character, a fictional character. But he represented many who shared those that same that same mindset and that same way of life. Who do you know? If you're a Christian and you have the assurance of knowing that when you die, you will be in the presence of God, praise God. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Hallelujah. But, but would we dare sit smugly back on our assurance while we know they're family members or neighbors or co-workers or you name it, who right now but dangling on the precipice of fires of hell. And you've got the rescue plan. We've got the rescue plan. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your vivid and sometimes dramatic teachings that have a way of, of driving these points into our hearts and minds. Lord, we want to just humbly Praise you, oh God, for your grace, your saving grace, for your mercy, for your redeeming love. We thank you, Lord, that you put into place, even back at the fall of humankind in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, Lord, you had a plan in place whereby lost and wretched, depraved sinners who deserve hell and judgment for eternity, Lord, by putting their faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, would receive forgiveness and have eternal life. Oh, God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you, you loved us enough to, to take our place on that cross. And because of that, Lord, we know with assurance that when we die, we know our souls will be there in your very presence in that beautiful place that's totally absent of the presence of sin where everything is perfect. We'll never see suffering and disease or death anymore. Oh God, thank you for making that possible for us. But Lord, we humbly confess to you today that we're not doing a great job of sharing this wonderful eternal rescue plan with those 
who are very close to the fires of hell and judgment forever. Lord, like that old hymn, Rescue the Perishing, we can't save anyone. Lord, we acknowledge that, but we do have the answer. And we have a story that speaks of a Savior who saved us, who is willing to save others, who put their faith and trust in Jesus. Lord, help us to be about the business of bringing others to discover this wonderful rescue plan. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Mark, I'll ask if you're willing to come and offer our benediction. Please.